It's a joy to be able to gather back around God's Word once again, and so I want to encourage you to take your copy of the Scriptures and join me in Acts chapter 17. We're going to pick back up in verse 16 as we continue on in our journey through the book of Acts. The series has been entitled Church on the Move, and this particular message as we finish out Acts chapter 17 verses 16 through verse 34 is entitled Wired for Worship. I don't know if you know this, but I have a hobby and my favorite thing to do is woodworking. And so one of the things that uh, as a woodworker, you never have enough tools. Like there's always an extra tool that you probably need to be able to accomplish the task you're trying to accomplish. I didn't know that before I got into woodworking. And so when I first bought a table saw and a sander, I thought that's all I'll ever need. And that was not the case at all. And after hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars worth of tools on the back end of that, what I realized is as a woodworker, there are tools that you need to accomplish specific tasks. And those tools are designed in such a way to be able to do what they're supposed to do. And so you look at a hammer, for instance, a hammer's design to accomplish really one thing, and that's to hammer something in, like a nail. Uh, you look at something like a plane, not an airplane, but a hand plane that you would use to woodwork with, and it's designed in such a way to be able to smooth out the top of a surface. Tools are designed for a specific purpose, a specific function. What we're going to see in the text this morning is the fact that us as human beings are designed in a specific way. And as the title of the message would say, we're designed, we're created, we are wired to worship. That's the way God formed us. That's the way God created us. We are designed, we are wired, we are created to worship. And here's what we're going to see happening in the text is Paul encountering a group of people who are worshiping. And the interesting thing is they're not worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping any other number of gods. And so Paul is going to zero in on that as a perfect opportunity to share with them that they were wired for worship, but it matters very much who they're worshiping. And they need to be worshiping the one true God. They need to be worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. So let's dive into the text. I want to read it for us, and then we'll walk back through it together. And this is what Luke records in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities." because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes, that we would be able to see, that you would open our ears, that we would be able to hear. And that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up the story of Paul being in Athens at this point. You remember that he was run out of Thessalonica, and then he was run again out of Berea. So now he's in the city of Athens. Athens was... Uh, place of cultural prominence in the ancient world. And so as Paul is there, he is witnessing very interesting things about the place that he's found himself in. And so he's looking around, he is watching, he's taking note. And here's what Paul recognizes, that these Athenians are worshiping beings. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can write down this Truth is the first one we come to in verses 16 through 21. Paul was greatly concerned with who or what the Athenians were worshiping. Paul was greatly concerned with who or what the Athenians were worshiping. So if you look in verse 16, it says that he was waiting for his comrades to come to him to Athens. And his spirit was provoked within him because he saw that this city was full of idols. So Paul is taking note. He's looking around. And what he's witnessing is that this place is filled with idol worship. 
that these Athenians are worshiping a number of different gods, that there were gods for almost anything you could imagine, gods for fertility, gods for rain, gods for sun, gods for planting crops. There were gods for everything that you could imagine, and they were spaced out throughout the city. There were temples that were set up to worship them. And so Paul takes note, and he looks, and he sees that, and he's very concerned about that. It troubles him to the point that he knows he must engage with them. And so here's what happens in verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue. Remember, that's the first place that Paul would go in a city. He reasoned with the Jews who were there and the devout persons, but he also went into the marketplace every day and he reasoned with those who happened to be there. There were philosophers there from different traditions. And so Paul is speaking to them and they're interested in hearing what he has to say. They're wanting to know what's going on. And some are saying, oh, he's just making things up. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But others are looking and saying, well, maybe he has some knowledge about some foreign deity, maybe that was worshiped in another location that we haven't yet found. And so we want to add that foreign deity to the mix. And so Paul is engaging with them because he's concerned with who or what they're worshiping. He is troubled that they are not worshiping the one true God, that they're worshiping all of these other false gods. And so it says they took him in verse 19 to the Areopagus. That would have been the location where all of these debates and conversations would have taken place in the city of Athens. And they say, what is this new teaching that you are bringing to us? Who is this new God that we're not familiar with that you are proclaiming? We want to know. And it says that they would spend all of their time in this location seeking to learn more, to engage more, to develop more philosophies about how to live life and who these other gods were. And so what we see first just in these verses is that Paul is very concerned with who or what they're worshiping. He is looking around. His heart is provoked, the scripture says. He is troubled by the fact that they don't worship the one true God. They're not worshiping Jesus Christ. What we notice second taking place in verses 22 through verse 31 is that Paul skillfully shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Athenians. Notice what happens in verse 22. It says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, so where they were willing to listen to him, where they were willing to exchange ideas, Paul stands up and this is what he says. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Like you guys are very serious about religion. You're very serious about worshiping all of these gods. You're very serious about what's going on. He says, but I noticed that there was an inscription made to an unknown God. And so here's the thing that's going on in Athens. They say, well, maybe we missed a God. It's not represented here. So we'll form an idol. We'll form a location, a spot to worship this unknown God that maybe we've not heard about yet. So Paul takes that and he says, I saw that you had an altar and this was the inscription to the unknown God. He says, what you worship as unknown, I'm here to proclaim who he is to you. And so verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples 
that are made with hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He said he's determined their allotted periods and the boundings of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps find their way toward him. So Paul is highlighting here that this unknown God you don't know about, this is the God I'm here to proclaim to you, and he's not like any of these other gods who need to be served. He is the God who created everything. He's the God who created all that exists and created mankind, and he is the God who has said that he is deserving of all worship. And so he says here in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he references some of their poets who said, for indeed we are his offspring. So notice what he says in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. I want you to notice what Paul's doing there. Paul is pointing out that these other gods they are worshiping are gods that they have themselves created. They're not true gods. They're false gods. They're idols. They've been crafted out of silver and gold and other things, and they come from their own imaginations. And he says, that's not the God I'm talking about. He says, the God that I'm talking about created you and created you to have a relationship with him. And you have been trying to fill your void in your heart where there's no relationship with him with worship of these other idols because you're wired for worship. And so you've been trying the best you can, but I'm here to tell you that this God has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, coming to this earth. And he says to them, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul in the Areopagus, after taking note that they're worshiping all of these false gods, says, I know the one true God. This is the God who created you. It's a God who desires to have a relationship with you. It's a God ultimately who will judge you in the end, whether you are righteous or not. And we see the fulfillment of that in his son, Jesus, being raised from the dead. Paul clearly preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, and he does it in a skillful way, engaging them where they are, using the tools that he has, and he's able to see that they're engaging with in their own culture. And he shares with them the hope that can be found in Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice the third truth that the Athenians responded to the gospel in one of three ways. Number one, they mocked. Number two, they responded with curiosity. Number three, they believed. So notice as we look at verse 32, it says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some responded in the first way. They mocked Paul. They said, this can't be true. This is crazy. There's no way someone can be raised from the dead. Notice the second response, though. Some said, we will hear 
from you about this again. They were curious. They were interested. They wanted to know more from Paul about this gospel message that he was preaching. But I want you to notice the third response. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. They believed the message of the gospel that Paul had preached. They forsook all the other gods. They trusted in the one true God who his son had come to this earth and died on the cross to forgive them of their sins. So what we see in the text is people who are wired for worship, doing what they're wired to do, worshiping, but they don't know the one true God. They don't know who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for them. They're worshiping any number of gods. And Paul, seeing that, says, I can't let this continue. I've got to tell them about the true God. And he skillfully shares the gospel with them. Some mocked him. Some said, hey, we're curious. We'll listen to you again. And some believed. They trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. As we take an opportunity over the next few minutes together to worship again through singing, I want you to think about the text this morning. Think about the reality that even as you sing right now a song of worship to the Lord, that you and I are wired for this. We are wired for worship. As we sing, never lose sight of that reality. In just a few minutes, we'll gather back together again and talk about some specific application in our own lives from this text. As we gather back around the text this morning, I want us to think about some application that we can take from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through verse 34 to apply in our own lives. What we saw in the first set of verses there, verses 16 through verse 21, is that Paul was very concerned with who or what the Athenians were worshiping. And I think that's a great question for ourselves as well. Are we concerned with who or what we personally and those around us are worshiping? Let's just think about this for a second on a personal level in our own lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, I think we would all echo that we are worshiping the one true God. I mean, our hearts are directed towards worshiping the Lord. And we may look at this story and we may think, gosh, that's really cute how they were crafting idols and they were worshiping them because they thought that those things would bring fulfillment in their lives. Isn't that just really sweet? But I want to challenge us, even as believers, that I think this is an indictment on us as well. The reality is that uh, our hearts are idol factories, that for us, we are trying to worship something. And for us, even as believers, that we should be worshiping the Lord, but oftentimes, if we're not careful, we will place other things on the throne of our hearts. And we will direct our affection, we will direct our attention, we will direct our resources to worshiping whatever that thing may be or whoever that person may be. And then as we look at the culture around us, we can very vividly see that our culture may not be worshiping uh, images crafted of stone or crafted of gold or silver like they were in Athens. And we may think, well, maybe we're a little better than them, but the truth is we're worshiping idols in our culture 
just the same. So I want you to think about idols personally that sometimes seek to dethrone the spot that the Lord has on your heart. And even in our culture, things that are trying to gain the affection and attention of people in our culture. I was thinking about that as we were looking at the text about a couple of things that I think can kind of sum up the idols that are in our culture today. And one of those is the idol of happiness. I mean, how many times have you heard, you know, just do whatever makes you happy? Maybe it's in the context of a marriage relationship and the conversation is, well, you know, I really just am not in love with that person anymore and they don't make me happy anymore. And so someone will say, well, you know, you, you're supposed to be happy. Like you're made for happiness. And so just do whatever makes you happy. Now, people say this about following career or goals or things like that. You know, just, just do whatever makes you happy. I mean, you don't want to be miserable in life. Just do whatever makes you happy. And here's the reality of that. Happiness can be an idol in our lives. Now, for the believer, happiness can be an idol where we think that God has intended for us to be happy all the time, that our happiness is God's highest priority. And the reality is that's not the case at all. God's highest priority is His glory, not our happiness. Now, one of the things that we find out in the scriptures for us as believers is that God did come to give us abundant life. And so in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we find true, ultimate happiness and fulfillment, not because of anything outside of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And so for us, that's a great reminder for us that for us as believers, we can't chase happiness, that if our happiness is in anything other than Jesus Christ, we will never truly be satisfied. And the same thing holds true for our culture as well. Our culture has bought into the lie that the primary thing they need to be concerned about is their own happiness. So when it comes to job, it's their happiness. When it comes to relationships, it's their own happiness. When it comes to marriage, do whatever makes you happy. Forget what the scriptures say. Forget what God's word has to say about all of these things. Just do whatever makes you happy. And I want you to know that that is an idol in our culture. And we should be able to see that. We should be able to see that in our own lives, and it should bring great concern for us as believers. We should be able to see that in the culture around us, and that should cause us great concern as well. So happiness is an idol, but think about this. Another idol is success. Success in life is something that is held up as something we should be aiming for that your success, whether it's financial success, whether it's career success, whether it's promotions, whether it's position or authority, whatever those things may be, that your success is the most important thing that you can be focused in on, that it becomes an idol in your life. So for us as believers, if we're not careful, we will buy into the lie that success is what's most important in our lives that we can attain success and we can find ultimate fulfillment and happiness. Now, I want you to think about this just in terms of church life. And for me, just in terms as a pastor, 
There is an entire industry built on what success looks like in a local church, what success in a pastor's life looks like. And most of those things are not things that the scripture says are successful. Most of those things are not things that the scripture calls out and says, a church that is like this is a church that is successful. Because in our culture, even in Christian circles, the primary things that people are concerned about are buildings, butts in the seat, and budgets, how much money's coming in. Like those things make a pastor or a church successful. But I want you to notice those are not the things that the scripture highlights. In fact, spiritual depth is something that the scripture highlights as foundational to a successful church, a successful body of believers. And so even as Christians in the church, we may look at success and say, if we can just attain this, if we can just have this many people show up for worship, if we can just have this type of building, if we can just have this amount of money, like that will mean we've arrived. And the reality is that God measures things very much differently than what the world measures as success. That holds true for the church. That holds true for you individually as a believer as well. That you are successful not because of what you do or what you can produce. You are successful because of who you are in Christ. Your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. That you are a child of of God. And so that for us uh, may explain some of the times when we allow success to be an idol in our own hearts. But think about it in the culture as well, a culture that worships successful people, a culture that worships people who are successful athletes or who have a lot of money or who are social media influencers. Like we hold those things up as those are what it means to be successful. And people are investing their lives trying to attain that level of success. And here's the bottom line. They will never find fulfillment if that is the God that they are worshiping because there is always someone else who is more successful than you are. I read a, a book not long ago about the founder of Nike, Phil Knight, and he talked about when Nike's stock went public and he made millions of dollars. And I think at this point in time, he's a billionaire. And yet he said he walked into a room one day and he saw Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Now, this is a man who's a billionaire, who's achieved incredible success. And he said, the one thing that I thought about is that they had more money than I had. A man who had reached the pinnacle of success in the world's eyes was never satisfied because someone else was just a little bit further along than he was. See, the truth is in our culture is that people are chasing success. That is an idol in their lives. And they are investing themselves in such a way that they are worshiping that. And it will never satisfy them. So for us as believers, it should concern us when there are idols in our own lives that have taken the place of where Jesus should be. But for us too, as we look in the culture, as we interact with people in the culture, that they also are worshiping idols. 
and those should bring great concern in our lives. Our antenna should go up in the same way that Paul's did here, and great concern. We should be provoked to help them see that what they're worshiping will not satisfy the deepest longings of their heart. So that's the first thing I want us to think about, the first question I want us to to ponder and seek to apply in our own lives. But as we look at that next set of verses, what we saw is that Paul skillfully shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with these Athenians. He knew that that was the only thing that would truly satisfy the deepest longings of their heart. And so a question for us is, are we following Paul's footsteps here? Are we skillfully sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ both to ourselves in our own lives? Are we preaching the gospel to ourselves? And then are we preaching the gospel skillfully in the culture? Now, you may look and say, well, why as a believer would I preach the gospel to myself? Like that seems kind of strange. But I want to encourage you to realize that you need to be reminded of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Daily, we as believers need to be reminded of what Christ has done in our lives. We need to daily be reminded that our ultimate fulfillment in life is not found in happiness, and it's not found in success. It's not found in money, and it's not found in sex. It's not found in anything that this world has to offer. Ultimate fulfillment and ultimate satisfaction as a believer is found in our relationship with the Lord. We have to remind ourselves of that because we can often fall into spiritual amnesia where we lose sight of what Christ has done for us and we think, gosh, now I have to make myself happy. Now I have to be successful. I have to chase these things down so that I can find fulfillment and those things will never fulfill us. They'll never satisfy that deepest longing that is only going to be satisfied in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we have to remind ourselves constantly of that reality. But then in the culture, you see, the truth is you have friends and family members, neighbors and coworkers who are worshiping happiness or worshiping success. They believe that if they can just reach this level of happiness, if they can just be married to some other person, if they can just have a little bit better kids, or if they can get this promotion, or they can have this much money in their bank account, that they will ultimately find satisfaction and fulfillment. And just like Phil Knight, what we know is that no matter what they attain, no matter how much happiness they find, how much success they find, that it'll never satisfy the deepest longing in their heart because they are wired to have a relationship with their Creator. And for us as believers, as we interact with people who don't know Jesus Christ, we have to keep that at the forefront of our minds, of remembering that that is what they need most deeply, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when they share with us, you know, I thought when I got this promotion that I will have arrived. If I could have just gotten this much money in my bank account, I thought I would have arrived. I thought I would be satisfied. I thought I would be okay at this point. And if I thought I just got remarried, that, that I would be happy and I'm, I'm just not finding happiness. Skillfully, we can engage in conversations with them to help them see that the reason that those things have not satisfied 
what's going on in their heart is because they can never fill the void that a relationship with Jesus Christ can fill. And so for us as believers, we are called to skillfully share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, to point them, as Paul did here with the Athenians, that what they need most deeply is a relationship with the God who created them through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, died for their sins, and was raised on the third day. As we think about the last section that we covered in the text, verses 32 through verse 34, we saw three responses to the message of the gospel when Paul preached it. We saw people mock him. We saw people respond in curiosity, saying, we'll hear more about this later. And then we saw people respond in belief, trusting Jesus as their Savior. So here's the question for us. Are we willing to be faithful to share the gospel regardless of the response we receive? I think that's one of the hardest things as believers, as we seek to tell other people about Jesus, as we seek to, to help them see that what they're worshiping, what they think they'll find ultimate fulfillment in will never satisfy them. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can. What I think we experience sometimes is the first response. People mock us. People say, I can't believe you just, would you just stop talking about that? That's not going to fix it. Or I can't believe you'd be so narrow-minded to say that this is what I need. Don't you understand that my problems are, are, are more in-depth than, than just having a relationship with Jesus Christ? Or maybe just outright mocking you, hateful towards you and saying, I don't want to hear what you have to say about Jesus Christ. That very well may be the response that you get from some people. And I just want to encourage you. The greatest missionary who ever walked the face of this planet, the Apostle Paul, received that type of response from some in Athens. He also received a response of those who were curious, those who wanted to know more. And I think for us, as we skillfully share the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we engage with people, as, as we, through relationship with them, hear their hurts and hear what they're trying to satisfy their souls with that's not working, I think as we share the gospel with them, some of them are going to be curious. Some of them are going to want to know more. They're going to want to engage more. They're going to want to have further conversations. They're going to want to hear more from us. They may even want to come to church with you and to, to witness, to see what's going on there. And I, I want to encourage you that there are seasons in people's lives who don't know Jesus Christ where they need someone just to walk with them through that season, just to answer questions as best they can, just to love them even though they're not yet ready to take that step of trusting Jesus as their Savior. And so I want to encourage you that you may experience people just simply being curious about the gospel when you share it with them. I want to encourage you, continue to be faithful, even through that curiosity, even if it takes years and years and years. And you may want to give up and you say, man, I just, I'm so tired of saying the same thing over and over and over with them. I want to encourage you, continue to be faithful to do what God has called you to do. And then lastly, there are going to be some when we share the hope of Jesus Christ that they 
will have their eyes open to see that that is what they need, that they need a relationship with Jesus Christ, that it is that that will satisfy the deepest longings of their soul. And like Paul experienced, there were some in Athens who responded in by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. We're not called to get the results. We're simply called as believers to be faithful, to share skillfully the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who need to hear it. And we've got to know that it is God who works in their lives, both before we engage with them and after we engage with them. And someone who may mock you when you share the gospel with them today may have someone years from now share the gospel with them and them come to faith in Jesus Christ. Someone who's curious today may very well, years from now, hear the gospel message once again and respond by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there are going to be some that you share with who are going to respond in faith. And in that moment, you will have the opportunity to rejoice with them in what Christ has done in their lives. Ultimately, we're simply called to be faithful and to leave the results and the response up to the Lord. And so as we think about this text, as we think about how Paul interacted with the Athenians, as we look in our culture, as we seek to interact with people who don't know Jesus, and then as we seek to examine our own hearts and see if there's idols that we've placed where the Lord should be in our hearts, um, as we think about preaching the gospel to ourselves and reminding ourselves daily that God has called us in relationship with him, and that is where our fulfillment should be found. As we look at people in the culture who need hope, who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, may we be faithful to share what Christ has done in our lives with them. Let's take a few minutes and pray together and then sing in response to the Lord. Thank you, God, once again for your word, for the opportunity we've had here to study it once again. Thank you for Paul and thank you for the Athenians that we're able to engage with and we're able to see what takes place between them in this text. And Father, there may be some who are watching this right now who have sought to fulfill the deepest longings of their heart with any number of things, success or happiness or name it. They've tried to fill the hole in their heart with those things. And this morning they've recognized that none of that's going to satisfy the deepest longings of their heart that only a relationship with Jesus Christ can do that. And right now, they want to take the step of trusting in Him for their salvation. So Lord, would you work in them right now? Would you help them just simply to call out to you, to just say, God, I've been trying to fill my life with all these things that I thought would satisfy, and I realize now that the only thing that can satisfy the deepest longings of my heart is a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I want that today. Father, for the believer who is watching right now, who's listening right now, would you help them to do a serious inventory of their own heart? What are the idols that they've placed on the throne of their hearts? And they've taken Jesus off, and they've sought to find fulfillment or identity in those things. Father, would you give them an opportunity right now to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be reminded once again that 
their identity is not wrapped up in happiness or success. Their identity is wrapped up in their relationship with you through your son, Jesus. Help them to rest in that, to place him back on the throne of their hearts today. Help us as your church to be faithful, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in this culture in which you've called us to share it. And may we be okay with the results that you already know we're going to experience. When we're mocked, would you help us to respond positively in that? When people are curious, would you give us the endurance to walk with them through their questions? And Father, when we see fruit, when we see people respond and believe the gospel, would you help us celebrate? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship together.